The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Walking through Hebrews, and the writer lays out a very powerful case using evidence from throughout the Old Testament to show why it would be a terrible mistake to turn from Jesus and go back to their old understandings and traditions, because Jesus alone is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, and therefore the only way to salvation. The writer begins by showing that Jesus is superior to the prophets and the angels. And then in Hebrews 3, he begins to show how Jesus is superior to Moses, how he leads his people into a better promised land and offers a better rest. And then, for five and a half chapters, the writer shows how Jesus is a better priest than Aaron's priesthood. Jesus is from a higher priestly order than Aaron, from the order of Melchizedek, and he offers a better sacrifice. Unlike Aaron, who offered the blood of animals that could never atone for sins, Jesus offers better blood, as Dr. Walker said last week, his own. This week, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, we'll see the writer repeat many of the same ideas yet again, and the whole chapter forms the conclusion of a long argument regarding the nature of Christ's high priesthood. Uh, follow along as I read. We begin Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those Who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said the above, you have neither desired nor taking pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
And by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, There is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we know over the past several chapters that you have talked a lot about this high priesthood of Jesus. You have spilled a lot of ink. It seems to be a very, very important concept that must be difficult for us to grasp, for you take so much time and effort, and repetition to drive the point home. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us soft and humble hearts, that we would hear from your word this morning, and that we would understand the implications of Jesus' greater priesthood, and that how it enables us to draw near to you in full assurance of faith. Father, bless our time in your word together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was buying an engagement ring for my future wife, the first jewelry store that I visited, I remember being surprised to discover that there was a whole section of rings that were much less expensive than I anticipated. But my excitement quickly waned when I discovered that they were not diamonds at all, but cubic zirconium. An excitable jewelry expert spent considerable time trying to help me, a novice, notice the similarities yet important differences between a diamond and a cubic zirconium. And that experience reminded me of what Hebrews is doing here as he compares Aaron's priesthood to Jesus' priesthood. For over five and a half chapters, he's held up Jesus and essentially said, look at this facet of Jesus in the light of the scriptures. Now, now look at this facet, and, and do you see its unique brilliance as I rotate it under the, the full spectrum of scripture? See how Jesus shines brighter. See how he is faultless next to the replica of Aaron's priesthood. Sure, Aaron reflects the light of God's purposes beautifully, but only in as much as it can imitate the superior priesthood of Jesus, the real deal. And so the warning was very clear, never confuse the old system of Aaron's priesthood with the value of Jesus. Jesus is far more precious, far superior. Now, this morning, I will spend the first part looking at the content of the first 21 verses, and and my goal is to clarify the main point and then spend most of the time fleshing out the first application of that main point, which is in verse 22. And then next week, we'll, 
we'll cover uh, several other applications. But the main point is stated clearly in verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is contrasted with Aaron's priesthood, which was unable to make perfect those who sought to draw near to God. Look at it in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Jesus is uniquely able to cleanse us. We sang about it this morning in the power of the cross. He bore our shame. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowned his blood-stained brow. He absorbed and became sin for us so that we could be cleansed in the sight of God. Now, this main point is supported with an argument in verses 2 through 13, and it repeats much of the evidence already given in previous chapters. But for good reason, he emphasizes it because it's really important. And the writer's going to use three things to support his main point. Logic in verses 1 through 4 and 11 through 14. Poetry in verses 5 through 10. And testimony in verses 15 through 18. Let's just walk through it real quick, and then we'll get to the main application. So first, he uses logic to support his point that only Jesus is able to perfect those who seek to draw near to God. Look at verse 2. If the Levitical law had been able to make perfect those who draw near, would not they have ceased to be offered those sacrifices? It's only logical. But since they continue to be offered, as, as it says in verses 3 and 4, Therefore, we must reckon it's impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. Rather, those sacrifices served on, a, on the Day of Atonement as a reminder of our sins every year. And so he uses logic again in verses 11 through 14, where he clarifies that Jesus' mission, by contrast, is accomplished compared to Aaron's mission. He illustrates the point by reminding the readers that in the earthly tabernacle, where the Aaron priesthood stood, there was no place to sit down because there was no expectation that his priestly work could ever be finished. But in the true heavenly tabernacle, Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of God because his mission was accomplished. And it is done. And once accomplished, he sat down to rest. And then he drives home the point in verses 13 and 14 where he says that Jesus is sitting on the throne, reigning in power, and what is Jesus doing? He is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' sacrificial death means that the war is over and Jesus has won. And because he raised victorious over death three days later. And so Jesus is like that super drug that has been injected into a terminally sick person The disease has been effectively treated and defeated at its source. It's only a matter of time before every last cell filled with that deadly bacteria of sin must yield. See, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice is perfectly powerful. It just needs time to run its course through every vein and every sinew 
But the fact is, there's no more medicine needed other than Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus sits and he's waiting until the sin that presides still in this broken earth, in our broken hearts, and even death itself is utterly crushed underfoot and made his footstool. So after using reason and logic to support his main point, he, second, he uses poetry. Look at verses 5 through 7, where he builds upon the argument by quoting Psalm 40, a psalm of David. Now, in its original context, Psalm 40 tells us that no one should think that they can neglect obedience to God and then somehow you know, assuage God and and manipulate him from being angry with you with animal sacrifices and gifts and burnt offerings. See, God does not desire sacrifices and offerings in that way. What does he desire? A broken heart and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He desires obedience that flows out of trusting him. And that's why he told King Saul to obey is better than sacrifice Psalm 40, spoken on the lips of David, clarifies the proper relationship of sacrifice to obedience, that we cannot manipulate God. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't place the words of Psalm 40 in their original context on the lips of David. Rather, he places these words in a new context on the lips of Jesus. Look at it carefully, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. By putting David's words on Jesus' lips, the writer is not talking about the general relationship between, proper relationship between sacrifice and obedience, but the unique position of Jesus to be the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And he was perfect because he was perfectly innocent. He had never disobeyed. And in verse 8 through 10, he clarifies what Psalm 40 means when spoken by Jesus. The sacrifice and offerings required by the Levitical law in verse 8 are not really, I mean, ultimately speaking, what God desired. I mean, even when those were offered properly out of a a sense of obedience and humility. for For it says, in Jesus, God does away with those offerings according to the Levitical law in verse 8 in order to establish something better. That's what God really was after. And that something better is stated in verse 9 where Jesus is saying, Behold, I have come to do your will. In other words, Jesus' obedience and his sacrifice is ultimately what God desired. For Jesus alone obeyed God as commanded without fail and his action alone his sacrifice alone was sufficient Jesus offered better blood not the blood of lambs and of goats but his own precious blood for his beloved people so Psalm 40 poetically placed on the lips of Jesus proves the writer's main point that only Jesus's perfect obedience and once and for all sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse us and allow us to draw near to God. It doesn't merely remind people of their sins like Aaron's offerings did and and humble them before God, but Jesus' offering actually cleanses people of their sins and restores them to God, which is why he states in verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Logic 
poetry. And third, he uses testimony to support this main point. Actually, the most dependable witness ever to take the stand steps up to testify about this power, this once and for all power in the sacrifice of God's Son. In verse 15 through 18, he directly quotes expert witness testimony from Jeremiah. Listen. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No less than the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet of Jeremiah hundreds of years before testifies to the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. That in verse 17, Jesus purges his people's guilty conscience by his blood. As the expert witness testifies, God will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And in verse 16, Jesus not only does that, but he regenerates his people's hearts so that they are empowered to obey now that they've been forgiving by putting God's law on their hearts and writing it on their minds. See, none other than the Holy Spirit is testifying that God is making full provision of both the past and the future by giving us the power to obey because he's given us a clean conscience and regenerated hearts. And he closes his point in verse 18 by reminding us, for where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So thus concludes one long argument, nearly six chapters with logic, poetry, and testimony, so that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that only Jesus can perfect those who draw near to God. The Old Testament priesthood was never able to make perfect those who seek to draw near to God. And so we're not to turn back to the old way, even though those sacrifices at the time this was written was still being performed and and the majority of people were following that way. Rather, we need to see how that old way was but a shadow of a greater reality and that Jesus is that greater reality. Now that the main point has been driven home, he fleshes out one main application in verses 19 through 22. And that is this. Here's the application. Draw near to God. Draw near to God with a right confidence, with true hearts and full assurance of faith, and with a clean conscience. Let's walk through this uh, step by step. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God first with a right confidence, with a right confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy place, God's very presence, verse 19, because we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, as he says in verse 21. And so we can draw near with confidence, without shame, without fear, without hesitation. We never need to worry that we are unwelcome. And so if you are here this morning and you stand in Christ, no matter how bad your week was, no matter how 
guilty and shameful you feel, if you are in Christ, you are welcome, but only if you enter by the blood of Christ. This confidence comes only from trusting Christ, not self, as verse 20 says. He, his blood opens the new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, the curtain in the temple merely represented access to God's most holy presence. But the actual curtain providing actual presence to God is the person, Jesus Christ. And he hangs between God and man, not in the temple, but on the cross. And through the cross, the way to God has been opened. And all who arrive by the cross may enter confidently. They are always welcome. I want to take a moment to contrast this with the the sure but vain self-confidence people often have when speaking about drawing near to God's presence. There's a vain self-confidence of many irreligious people, and it's often reflected in comments that I would hear on secular college campuses where I worked. People, agnostics, particularly atheists, would say, "When, when I die... Should I discover that God actually exists and I stand before him, he's got a lot explaining to do. Now, they may be open to the possibility that God just might vindicate himself, but the important thing to note in that attitude and that perspective is that I get to sit on the bench and God is on the stand. Such a person confidently asserts that he'll enter God's throne room with the authority to make demands. Now, I don't know about you, but if this universe really has billions of galaxies and stars, God is pretty majestic and holy. And I sincerely doubt that any of us little ants running around on this human planet will have any authority or confidence to arrogantly go into his presence making such demands. I'm betting, it's a safe bet to say that's quite a misplaced confidence. But there's a religious version of vain self-confidence too expressed. And there's a conservative side to this and a liberal side. The conservative side sounds like this. I've been a good person my entire life, or at least I've attempted to be. I pray, I give, I I serve at church, the Boy Scouts. I've never done many of the terrible things others have done that I read about on Facebook. And such a person is quite self-confident, filled with self-righteousness, and they assume that when they get into God's presence, they can barter with God. But they conveniently forget that God really knows them. (laughs) That God sees all. He, He not only knows your public face, he sees what you do when no one is looking and he can read your mind. He knows your thoughts and your attitudes, your real motives behind what you do. And it's not always as loving as you think it is. And let's just say God is not impressed. And if the reality of that doesn't terrify you, your confidence is certainly misplaced. And there's a liberal religious version that sounds like this, that has this vain confidence when they they get into God's presence thinking, well, my God is a God of love. 
My God would never want for me something I do not want for myself. And because he really understands me, he could never really stay angry with me. Such a person enters God's presence with great confidence because, honestly, God is not different from him or her. God is simply an extension of him or her. And they they reverse things here. Rather than see that they are made in God's image to worship and glorify him, they have made a God in their own image who does whatever they want, who conforms to their desires and opinions, and they functionally take God's place. And of course, their confidence of entering God's presence is grossly misplaced. These worldly confidences are vanity, and they're nothing like the confidence the writer of Hebrews speaks of. The confidence this writer instills is an anchor for the soul, for it allows God to be God, and it does not ignore his perfections, his majesty, his holiness, his righteousness and truth, but it rests also on his loving kindness steadfast faithfulness and goodness for it recognizes that he has sent his one and only son to be our savior who bears all our guilt and shame so that we can draw near to God with big confidence that is very well placed for trusting in the one God sent is the biggest honor you can give to God. Trusting in the one God sent to live the life you and I all know we should live, but we don't live. In order to save us from the consequences you and I know we deserve, but can be forgiven of, if we allow him to take those consequences into himself and pay them. See, this is all the confidence you need to draw near to God. And it leads to our next application. We draw near with a right confidence and with true hearts and full assurance of faith. Look at verse 22. What does it mean to have a true heart? Well, I imagine it's the opposite of having a false heart. And every Disney film that I've ever watched tells us to be true to our heart. But it's actually not that simple, is it? Because our hearts are tricky things, and they can deceive us. Who among us hasn't followed our heart at some point in our life, only later to discover? That was a terrible idea. I followed my heart and dated a girl my senior year of high school. And that experience cured me of the desire to date for four years. See, as we, as we broaden our understanding of the world, as we deepen our knowledge of ourselves, an unfortunate thing happens. We unhappily discover that our hearts can deceive us because the sin nature is more extensive than we ever thought. In fact, our sin nature is very sinister. And the worst of it is, is that we don't simply see the sinister nature, the darkness of the sin nature running rampant out there in the world but it runs amok up close in in our community, in our schools, in our workplaces, our churches, our families, and even in our own hearts. Now, to be clear, God is not surprised by human sinfulness. 
But have you ever been? I know I have. I'm regularly caught off guard by just how terrible a rebellious heart can become. And sometimes this realization first dawns on us, maybe around the time of puberty. Other times it doesn't happen until we, we go away to college. Sometimes maybe during our first job placement or when a spouse doesn't measure up to our expectations. Sometimes it really sets in after having a, a child whose simple childishness brings out angry words and shameful responses in us that we swore we would never succumb to. See, it's only natural to think of ourselves as better than we ultimately discover ourselves to be and as a result to be kind of surprised by how broken and sinful we are. The Bible says, however, that our sin nature is more extensive than we ever imagined. And so when that inconvenient truth confronts us, we have a choice to make. We can put on false hearts. We can attempt to minimize our sin with various self-justifications. We can ignore it. We can blame others. Or we can maintain true hearts and own up to our sinful brokenness. But I'm learning that people rarely, if ever, have the courage to own up to the full extent of their sin, their guilt, their shame, their brokenness, unless they have the confidence that it can be dealt with and that they will be loved through it. That they could be forgiven, restored, and renewed. See, those two things are inseparable. That is why verse 22 commands us to draw near to God with true hearts of full, of, uh, of, uh, full assurance of faith. You can't separate those two. Only hearts saturated in full assurance of God's love and forgiveness in Christ, only those hearts have the safety needed to be truly, fully honest. True-hearted, not false-hearted. True hearts are confessing hearts. As Becky Pippert eloquently said, Cheer up, you're more sinful than you ever imagined. Yet at the same time, more deeply cherished and loved than you know. See, there is no need to hide your sin, no need to try to cover it over, explain it away, or or manage your reputation. When you know you're loved, that God can handle it, that he's not surprised by it, so neither do you need to be. The more healthy way, the better way is to confess it, to come to grips with it, to repent of it. See, God knows all of us better than we know ourselves. He's not surprised by your sin, even though you may be. In fact, God already sent Jesus to pay the full penalty for your sin in Jesus. And now what he wants from you is to stop justifying your sin, stop hiding, confess, come out in the open. You are loved in Christ. Stop minimizing your sin out of fear that God cannot handle it and start emphasizing the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross. Stop living in fear that you will never change and start resting in God's grace and promises that all his enemies, including the remaining indwelling sin of his people, will be destroyed. So draw near to God with a right confidence with true hearts and full assurance of faith, and lastly, with a clean conscience. For only a clean conscience will transform your life, 
purifying it from the inside out. Look at verse 22. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is how we draw near. See, there's nothing as liberating as a clean conscience. It changes everything. A clean conscience is no superficial cleansing that looks great on the outside but leaves the insides rotting. No, it is a systemic healing that grows from the inside out. It is a heart change that changes the whole person. I have the honor to facilitate a Bible study occasionally at North Star Initiative and their Harbor House. It's a ministry to women victimized by sex trafficking, and it's one of the favorite parts of my job. Uh, Adrian and Dave Miller invited me to the North Star Banquet last year, and the main speaker was was a former long-term prostitute and drug addict who shared her brokenness and shame. Now, I admit, it was hard for me to imagine, let alone relate to, the utter defilement that this woman suffered and the evils that she experienced. As a prostitute and drug addict, she came to see herself as less valuable than a piece of trash. But God rescued her out of her life of drugs and violence. And yes, she was a victim, but she had also made foolish, sinful choices that others leveraged against her to further victimize her. But she testified that night of how Jesus had purified her. From the inside out, he had cleansed her from an evil conscience. She said he restored her virginity, spiritually speaking, and the result of that was that her mind and her body slowly started to heal. And years later, here she is standing before audiences, not just the audience that I was in, but audiences around the world advocating for sex trafficked people, victims. And she had helped more people than anyone really knows. And I was amazed by this woman as she stood before us. What a beautiful, elegant lady, dressed like royalty. She was poised in her conversation around the dinner table. She was well-spoken in dialogue, passionate as she spoke to the larger crowd. Who would have ever imagined that this confident, loving, gracious lady had ever known such depths of shame and despair? But that's the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. See, Jesus' purifying power had taken over her life and it started in her heart and then it penetrated her mind and ultimately over time, it healed her body and now she is an instrument of healing around the entire globe. This is the cleansing power of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It gives you a well-placed and eternally established confidence to draw near to God. It is no vain confidence. It is no wishful thinking. It gives you the safety you need to be true of heart, constantly before God and others confessing your sin and repenting because you know that God so loves you, he can bear the worst of it no matter how bad and defiling it ever gets. What safety? 
And it comes with a cleansing power so unique that it can purify any dirty conscience and it will change an entire person's life and not only one person, but through that person it can change the world. And it's happening in this community. It's happening in this church. It's happening in churches around the world. I was down at Bogota. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with over 300 people. Hundreds of people profess faith in Christ. There's a little revival going down there. Dozens of them were in tears saying, I have never heard this before. Pray that they continue to grow in faith and they experience the full cleansing power of Jesus. This power is unique. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word in your holy scriptures. Lord, we need the repetition because we are slow of mind and heart of heart to believe the once and for all power of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross for our sins. The power it has to give us true confidence to draw near to you. The way in which it makes us safe gives us the courage to be true of heart and confess our sin to you and to others because we know you already know the worst of it and paid for it. And it has the power to cleanse us. Cleanse us not just on the outside, but deep within and change our entire life. Oh God, may this power touch on any lives here today that don't know it. Let your Holy Spirit grant repentance unto life and true hope. And so Lord, with anyone here, that is cowering in shame, let them turn to the cross and be cleansed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.